You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash true crime. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Unsolved Murders, Cults Uncovered, and Mysteries Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just snatched it from her. My son had took it and it's like, I just hit her with it. Morbidology is a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms. So then a week after I got to LA, I'm walking down the street and this car zooms in front of me almost hits me and I was like hey like what are you doing I'm walking here and it was a convertible and the he rolls down the window and is like hey babe it's me and I started screaming I was like what are you doing how the fuck did you find me and I'm just screaming and he and he with so much authority just went stop you're making a scene and you're acting crazy I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. On today's episode of Strictly Stalking, we're speaking with Lindsay, who was stalked by a man she dated from her church. She had moved back to her hometown after a breakup, joined the church choir, and became close friends with the music director. Although she wasn't physically attracted to him, he pushed her into a relationship and almost immediately became controlling and toxic. He read through her text messages, got mad at her for going to the gym alone, obsessed over who liked her Instagram posts, and eventually became abusive. As Lindsay was breaking things off with him, coincidentally, the police served a warrant for his arrest for alleged sexual assault of a minor. He went on the run, only communicating with Lindsay and threatening suicide. She convinced him to turn himself in, but he was able to quickly post bail. Upon his release, he could not accept the breakup and began stalking her, texting her, love bombing her, sending gifts, and even following her out of town. Because of his threats and access to firearms, Lindsay went into hiding in order to stay alive. Lindsay, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Of course. What was family life like for you? Uh, my family is very close. Uh, everyone's super supportive. I have very, very open-minded, kind of hippie-ish, uh, welcoming parents. They're always the life of the party, and they're the most generous people I know. And they're, they're constantly going out of their way to help others, um, and they've taught me to be the same way. So we grew up being connected to the church but not, we didn't go super regularly or anything. And there was some alcoholism in my family growing up. So I definitely grew up like tolerating and normalizing a certain level of fear and stability or instability um, and um, inappropriate behavior. As a kid, what kind of things did you use to cope with that sort of behavior? I am the people pleaser and peacemaker. Um, and so I just learned how to use comedy to cool everything down. And I learned how to just kind of diffuse tense situations um, and how to really just go along to get along, I would say. And then what did that turn into for you about what you aspired to be when you grew up? Well, that's an interesting question. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be an actress when I grew up. And it is interesting. I hadn't thought about the fact that having to think through everyone's different perspectives is what allowed me to 
be the peacemaker and, um, you know, using comedy to diffuse a situation gave me the skills that I now use when I do stand-up comedy. What was life like before you decided to move back home? And why did you decide to move back home? Yeah, so <laughs> I fell madly in love with this guy. And we were sure we were going to get married. We'd moved in together. And in December of 2019, we moved in together. And then the pandemic hit in March. And, you know, things changed. All of the acting things I had lined up for the next two years were just knocked out all at once. I had always worked from home for my day job, and now he was working from home, too. So we had two people and a dog in this tiny little apartment in D.C. And then, you know, there were other things going on politically and emotionally. And so we really both fell into deep depressions. Um, but he was also going through some grief after a family loss and dealing with an identity crisis. And so it just got to a point where he was really too depressed to focus on anything but himself. And I, I recognized that and I knew he needed that space. So we agreed that it would be better for us to break up so that he could focus on his healing. We were still in touch. But at that point, I moved back home with my dog and it was hard. I, I hadn't lived at home since my my sophomore year of college um, that summer after. And I took so much pride in that. Y'all, I worked so hard. I worked two jobs a summer, three jobs a summer to be able to pay for my rent. And I was like, I'm not living at home. I, I'm i Miss Independent. I can pay my own way. And so in my late 20s, to have to come drag in my ass back with my dog, like it, it was really humiliating. Um, and I was super heartbroken. So I would say I was probably in the lowest place of my life right before I met my stalker, living at home, everything that I had planned for my future had just been kind of all wiped out at once. And I just didn't know who I was, where I was going or what my life was going to look like. And I felt pretty unlovable, actually. You met your stalker at church in your hometown. Were you very religious before everything happened? Was church a big part of your life? Yeah, so I grew up, like I said, my childhood home is directly across the street from what we call like my home church. And it's a great church. I went kind of off and on growing up. My, the attitude was, my dad said, if it was a synagogue across the street, we'd be Jewish. I went to that church because it was so close to the house. But then... A couple of years before I had moved back home, I found a church in D.C. that I loved, and that's the church that I still go to today. And so religion, I would say, started playing an increasingly big role in my life for the three to four years leading up to this experience and still does play an important role in my life. When you got to the church, were you searching for something at that time in your life? Yeah, I think one of the things about the pandemic was that a lot of the churches closed down. And so I was still a member of my church in D.C., but I wasn't able to connect with them in the way that I would have otherwise. And so this church across the street, they were also doing their services digitally, but I knew that I could connect with them if I joined the choir. That would be a way that I could go in, meet with other people, and, you know, have some sort of like actual connection to other people and my higher power in the middle of the pandemic. So that's really what I was searching for when I went back there. I saw the potential to make friends in this community that I grew up in, but now didn't know anyone in and make connections with people because, you know, I, I worked from home. I lived with my parents. We're in the middle of a pandemic. There wasn't, I felt really isolated and alone. How soon after you got back to your hometown did you meet your stalker? And what were your first thoughts of him? What was the first interaction like? I spent the first couple of months at home just being very, very sad and feeling bad for myself. And I would say I moved back right before Thanksgiving. And I would say in January of 2020, I finally like crawled out of my hole enough to decide that I wanted to go join the choir. And so I guess it had just been a few months since I'd been home. And I met him when I went to the church to like audition for the choir. And 
you know that I remember the moment when I first met him because he came outside to let me into the church and he had these cowboy boots on and these jeans. And the first thing he said was like, oh, you must be Lindsay. Hey, welcome home. And he just had this like gigantic warm smile. And yeah, he made me feel like I wasn't pathetic for being back here, but like it was a choice that I had made and he was happy that I was here. And he was super tall and twangy and he wasn't handsome. And that like made me feel comfortable. He just felt like this big, like comfortable teddy bear, safe place. And he was super charismatic. And my mother had been going to the church for years. And he also felt so safe because my mom knew him. And she used to come home every week and be like, oh, this guy hugged me. This guy asked how, you know, your father was doing. He remembered he'd been sick. And so it was just like, I felt like I already had a relationship with this person, even though I'd never met him. So yeah, my first impression was just like, oh, wow, he's just so sweet. And it was really nice to be around him. He felt like a ray of sunshine, I guess. (laughs) What were your first few conversations like? What what did you guys talk about? So after I did my audition, the first day we went to have lunch. He was like, all right, well, cool. Yeah, you're in the choir. You want to just go grab some lunch? And I was like, okay, sure. You know, this is not a weird thing for someone in the minister staff to do. So we went to lunch and I do remember being like, oh, I'm surprised because while we were there, he ordered a beer. And I was like, okay, like it's lunchtime. We're just ordering a beer. And, And I also followed suit, but I was like, all right, this is a different kind of pastor. Like, So we just talked about life and we talked about religion and, you know, the church that I go to is a predominantly black church and they have beliefs that I didn't grow up having in my church. And we are able to talk about those beliefs. And I'm also a very liberal person. And so, you know, it's, it's not a super common thing to be a person or it doesn't feel common to be a person who has liberal beliefs, but also has this connection to a higher power that I recognize in the Christian faith. And so it was great to be able to talk about that. And he was the same way. And so it was great to be able to have those conversations. And we talked about, you know, being young and being wild and all the things that we'd done that were stupid um, when we were younger. And at the end of that meal, he was like, well... I'm either going to date you or be friends with you, but I know that there's something here. And I was like, all right, whatever, slow your, (laughs) cool your jets. But yeah. And then from there, he invited me to his house the next night for dinner. And I was still kind of like, all right, I don't know where this is going. And I don't think he's cute. So I was being a turd and I was like, well, (laughs) I only drank international wines and I got there for dinner and he'd cooked dinner. And he had wines from, like, seven different countries lined up on the counter. He was like, pick, you know, where do you want to go in the world tonight? Pick whatever you want. If you don't like it, we'll go to the next one. And it was so much fun. And it was, like, low pressure. We hung out with his roommates. And we sat around the fire and just talked all night. And it just felt so good. So, like, non-threatening. And I just felt so, like, spoiled and, yeah, taken care of. (laughs) this is not my life. And like, I love my ex. And like, this is so crazy to me. And this is not how my life was supposed to be. And he just let me do it and sat there with me. And I, he just sat there and like, put his arms around me and let me just cry and heave and say all of these things, knowing like, I knew that he had a crush on me at that point. And he still just listened and didn't try to correct me and let me have that. And that was the moment where I was like, okay, I need this. I need someone who's going to let me feel like this. And that's something that I wasn't allowed to do growing up. It was like, you're being, okay, you're, you're being dramatic. You're making a scene. You need to calm down, you know? Um, And it was nice to have someone recognize that and just let me have that. And that was where I was like, this is a great guy. And maybe I should think about being with him. I still didn't really want to be in a relationship, but he wanted to, and he just kept, like, asking and asking and asking. I felt like after that, I kind of had this, like, 
trauma bond to him. You know, he was with me in that place. And so I was like, okay, fine. And I remember the first time I kissed him in my head thinking like, oh my God, this feels like kissing Rosie O'Donnell. Like it was still not, (laughs) it was still not what I had imagined for myself. But I was just like, this is, this is a stable person. This is a person with the same beliefs as you. You should want something like this. And so I tried to convince myself that like, this is the type of person that I should be with and that I needed to get myself on board and that not being with him would be like self, self-sabotage. That's what I was telling myself. How did the relationship change once you moved from friendship into a more intimate relationship? Oh my God, he got so controlling so fast. It was crazy. It was like, He was so needy all the time, and he wanted me there with him all the time. I worked from home, and he would be there every morning bringing me coffee, which at first was very cute, but, like, when I would have a meeting, it would be like, come on, you can get on the outside and get coffee, like, and he um, drove this van to make deliveries to make extra money during the week, and he would be like, just bring your computer and do your do your work in the van next to me. We can just talk. And if I was like, no, like, I just need to be at my station. It was like this big deal all the time. And he was always looking through my Instagram. And I remember, like, he was still love bombing like crazy. But it was, like, punctuated with him making me feel guilty We were on this little trip together, a little weekend trip, and while we're sitting at this bar, having a drink, enjoying ourselves, he's like, hey, by the way, I noticed that this guy is liking all of your photos on Instagram. Who is he? I noticed you like some of his. And I'm like, that that is a random, random guy who also does acting. I've talked to a couple of times specifically about acting. He lives in another state. I don't know him. And it became this big thing, like, well, do you think that's appropriate? You're in a relationship. Like, you don't have to unfollow him for me, but... And how is he supposed to know you're in a relationship? Because you don't have a picture posted of me. I was like, I I didn't even post a picture of the man I lived with until we were dating for six months. And it just became this thing until I did it. And then, you know, like, I had told him that I was still speaking with my ex and... One night, we were out, we had seen a baseball game, we're, again, enjoying ourselves, and just when I'm relaxed, he was like, are you talking to your ex? And I was like, yeah, I told you that. He's like, well, do you think that's appropriate? I was like, well, yeah, I told you about it. And he, the, the questions he was asking, I realized, like, oh, you went through my phone. And I asked, did you go through my phone? And he was like, I mean... Uh, is there, is that a problem? Did you have something to hide? And I was like, no, I didn't have anything to hide, but I don't like you going through my phone. I think that's just like ridiculous. And it just became this big deal until I agreed like, okay, fine. Like I just won't talk to him. It's fine. Like whatever. So yeah, I guess all of a sudden I just started being controlled and I, I felt it, but I didn't feel strong enough to stand up for myself against it to a point. And, you know, I remember at one point he, he banned me from saying, you're gaslighting me. He was like, I never want to hear that again. I'm so tired of hearing that. And so I had been saying it, not just in my head, but out loud. But it got to a point where he would convince me, like, I'm just being crazy. I'm just being reactive. I was already in a bad place. So I was being emotional. He would tell me like, I love you and you're lucky because you're hard to love because of everything you've been through. You have a lot of baggage. So yeah, things definitely changed pretty, pretty quickly. Did you know that according to crime data, the average home break-in lasts between eight and 10 minutes? Wow, that's crazy. I would have thought it takes a lot longer than that. In fact, my dog needs more than 10 minutes of attention when I first walk in my house. It's really that fast. And that's why we both use and trust Simply Safe, because they respond quickly and forcefully and protect us with cutting edge security technology. 
and they're powered by professional monitoring agents 24-7. Simply Safe's agents are great, and they're really there when you need them. Not only do they call the moment a threat is detected, but they also send out police or first responders in, in an emergency, even if you're not home or they can't reach you. There's advanced sensors in every room, and with security cameras inside and outside my place, I've been sleeping great at night knowing that Simply Safe has my back. And you know I travel a lot. So I love that I can check on my house anytime and from anywhere in the world, right from my phone. I can watch the cameras, lock or unlock my doors, and I'm alerted immediately in case anything happens. And if something does happen, the monitoring agents use proprietary advanced response technology to visually confirm when a break-in is real, so you can get the highest priority police dispatch. So even when I'm not home, Simply Safe is there for me. And that's what gives me a peace of mind. Customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com slash stalking. Save 20% on your Simply Safe security system when you sign up for an interactive monitoring plan and you get your first month free. Visit simplysafe.com slash stalking to learn more. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Check out today's sponsor, k12.com, if you're looking for more control over your child's education. K-12 helps you take charge with tuition-free online school that fits your life. K-12 personalizes your child's education to let them learn in their own ways. They help your child learn at their own pace and using tools and tech for their generation. K-12 makes learning flexible and interactive for your child's needs. And guess what? K-12 makes learning fun. That's right. Your child will have fun learning at k12.com. Go to k12.com slash podcast so you can explore the curriculum and see success stories from some of the over 2 million families who've taken charge of their child's education. We want you to help your child reach their full potential at k12.com, where classes are taught by passionate, state-certified teachers. And your child has the chance to develop social skills through field trips, clubs, and activities. K-12 has been helping families take control of their child's education for over 20 years, and you can too. Take charge today at k12.com slash podcast. That's k12.com slash podcast. Tell us some of the things that you were noticing that weren't working out in your relationship at this point. I realized that he wasn't just, like, controlling in a way that was annoying, but it was dangerous in April of 2021. Yeah, he he was out celebrating his roommate's birthday, and he called me and was like, hey, why don't you come out and celebrate with us? I had been out shooting all day in another state. I was exhausted. I didn't want to go, but he just kept begging, so I went along, went out. And after the party, uh, he was saying, let's all go back to the house and we'll party at the house. And he was really, really drunk. Um, And so long story short, we ended up in an argument because I wanted to go home and he wanted me to stay. And also, I'm really uncomfortable around drunk men. So I also just didn't want to be in his presence while he was drunk. And so, yeah, when I said I wanted to leave... He cursed me out. He called me names. He cried. Then he did everything to convince me to stay. And then he physically blocked me into his room so I couldn't get out. And he is like six foot four, 350. Like he's a huge dude. There was no way I was getting past him. And so finally I yelled at him and told him he needed to move out of my way. And I ran downstairs. And his roommate actually had to open the front door of the house to me because the door in that house never opened the first time. You had to, like, use both hands and, like, mess with it and pull. And it would take me, like, two minutes every time to get it open with all my strength. And I couldn't – I knew running out of the house I couldn't do it. So his roommate had to open the door for me, which when you're terrified for your life is, like, the worst thing. And so – I run outside. He comes running after me and asked me to stay. I said, no. He was like, well, can we go on a walk together? And so I didn't want to, but like, yeah, I call this survivor's math where it's like, okay. And this was something I learned to do as a kid, which is, okay, you're upset right now. 
if I go on a walk with you, maybe I can get you to calm down enough that I can leave without this escalating any further. So I was like, okay, we'll go on a walk. This walk around the block took over an hour. The whole time he's screaming, he's still like physically blocking me and making no sense and calling me names. We get back to my car. I just want to leave. I get in the car and he sits so that his body is between the car door and my seat. So I can't close the door. And I was like, I I need to go home. I'm so tired. I need to go home. Please stop. We can talk about this tomorrow. Please, please, please. And he would not let me close the door. He would not let me leave until finally I screamed so loud at him that his neighbors came outside. And then he was embarrassed. So I I went, I left, I go home. And the whole time I'm on my way home, he's calling me nonstop, calling me, calling me, texting me. And I got home. I was so upset. I went to bed. The next morning, I wake up to him coming into my room, coming to the side of my bed. He had flowers in his hand. He had coffee. He's crying. And he was like, I'm so sorry. I'll never do anything like that again. I can't believe I did that. I've apologized to your parents. I begged for their forgiveness. Please forgive me. And... At that point, I was like, oh, shit, I'm in huge trouble because this dude does not care about my feelings or my safety. He was able to convince the people closest to me that he's safe enough, that he was able to walk through my home, walk into my childhood bedroom, walk to the side of my bed before I had opened my eyes and confront me the first thing in the morning. And so at that point, I was like, I am not safe. And I started thinking at that point about how I was going to get out of their relationship because he was not going to be accepting rejection. And I realized that. And how long had you been together at this point when you were starting to think that it was time to get out? It was like four months. It was nothing crazy. It wasn't years. It was super fast. It was like one day he was one person and the next day he was another person. What steps did you start making to get out of the relationship? I decided that I was going to need to physically leave. And so I had been taking an acting class virtually that was based in L.A. And I thought, this is going to be so great. I'll just go to L.A. My sister lives there. She was out of town. Her house was open. I'll just go stay in L.A. at her house. And so I told him that I was going to be leaving our area to go to LA for a month or so to take this acting class. And I was thinking like, okay, I'll get out there and then I'll tell him that we're not going to see each other anymore. And then it'll have time to blow over and I can think about moving. And so, yeah, it was, it was that physical separation piece. I had made plans to leave uh, and go out of town, but in May of 2021, The police actually came to his home and to the church where he worked and served him a warrant for alleged sexual assault of a minor from when he lived in Texas. And so he was at my house that day, actually, on his lunch break, and he was helping me run lines for something I was doing. And he got this text message and this look across his face that ironically I recognized as terror because it's what I had felt in his presence. And I was like, what's going on? And he said that one of his dogs had escaped the fence and he needed to go home and put the dog back, but he'd be right back. And I was like, okay, whatever. I knew there was something wrong, but I accepted it. And then, um, yeah, he, he left, he went on the run. I didn't hear anything from him until 11 o'clock that night. And he just said, I can't talk right now. I'm okay. I'll call you again. And then the pastor from the church where he worked called, asked if I knew where he was. Uh, I didn't. Asked if I knew what was going on. I didn't. And he explained to me that there was a warrant for his arrest. I didn't know what it was for. Once you found out that he had this warrant for his arrest and why and everything that was going on, 
what was going through your head? Were you shocked? Did you have any inclination that something like this could happen? What was happening in, inside for you? I was very shocked, very shocked. It was really upsetting to me. You know, I have always served in the youth ministry of the church. I love kids. I'm always around kids. And to me, that was like the most inexcusable thing a person can do. And actually, the first time we went out, he had this like, was this thing that I noticed the first time we went out, it was like every once in a while he would blink and I would see this like blackness in his eyes. And it was kind of like, and then he would blink again and it would be gone. And it kind of, it was like an alligator. You know how they have like the double lid and sometimes when they blink, it'll just flick across for a second. I saw this blackness in his eyes and I'd only seen it one other time with a boss of mine who had been assaulted or who had been accused of sexually assaulting a minor as well. And I said to him at this lunch, you know, I've dated every kind of loser out there. The only kind of guy I haven't dated is someone who sexually assaulted a child. I hope that you have never done that, which is like a very, obviously that's a weird thing to say to someone, but I said it because I just saw this thing in him and he was like, what? Why would you say that to me? What? And I was like, I mean, that's not a no. And he was like, no, like, of course I would never do. What is wrong with you? And so I just put it in my rear view and assumed like, okay, that was based on past trauma and that was okay. So when I found out that he had been accused of this, I was horrified. But at the same time, someone asked me the day after we found out if I believed the charges. And I said, yes. I said, yeah, I do believe it. I believe that we believe women. We believe survivors. I believe that 16-year-old girls, 14-year-old girls don't come forward with stuff like this for no reason, especially this many years later. And I had seen this thing in him. And I was like, yeah, I do believe that he did it. So then he went on the run. Did you think that you would hear from him once he was on the run? And when you did hear from him, how did those conversations go? What was happening there? When he went on the run, first I was like, this is ridiculous. This is, this fucking sucks. This is horrible. Of course, like, <laughs> oh, of course, like I dated the nice guy who works at a church and now it turns out that he's a predator and he's on the run. Of course that's going to happen. But I thought like, okay, well, at least now the relationship is clearly over and I won't even have to do anything to end it. Like, that's the one silver lining. That was not the case in his mind. He tried to convince me that this was in his past and he was on drugs at the time and we could still be together and God wanted us to be together. He knew that God wanted us to be together and it was weeks of of this. And um, in this time, I actually went away um, for a week with my best friend. We went to Mexico just because I needed to relax. And he was calling me all the time asking like, oh, have you met anyone? I bet that you're like hooking up with someone. You're so immoral. And so the he was still trying to gaslight me. He was still trying to like plead his case and he was crying and telling me he wasn't the same person and then trying to use the faith against me. Like, don't you believe in forgiveness? You've done bad things in your past. You, how many guys have you slept with in your past? And so he just tried to make equivalent our pasts and convince me that, you know, we both had this forgiveness journey and I I needed to be able to forgive him in order to be a good parishioner of my faith. So for me, it was hard for me to hear. But I would say that for me, I am a person of faith who exists within a religion. And that's an important distinction because my personal relationship with my higher power allowed me to see through all of the bullshit that he was spewing at me and saying, like, these are, like, religious 
catchphrases he's throwing at me. And also I felt like I had to continue to talk to him throughout this experience because I remember that there was a girl who at the time of the assault was 14 on the other side. And I was like, this is her one chance to be able to confront this person who hurt her. And if I can speak to him long enough to get him to turn himself in and she gets her day in court, then there is at least something that can come out of all of this ugliness that I can control. And that was the only thing that I felt like I could control. It must have been so difficult even just to hear his voice and have to placate him in that way. How often were you talking to him and how did things eventually end with him being on the run? He called me constantly all night and day. You know what? I think the thing about being in a situation where you're being sucked by someone you were in a relationship with, especially someone who has already been domestically abusive, is that one, you don't realize that line between when it's just domestic violence and it becomes stalking. And two, it's kind of like having your own personal cult leader all the time. You know, he would keep me up all night and day and call me at random times. And he would invoke tenants of faith. And he would talk about people that we knew in common. And so it was like this constant brainwashing. And he contacted me absolutely constantly because I realized he felt like if he wasn't talking to me all the time, his little spell would be broken. And I would see through him and I would stop talking to him. So he was on the run for about three weeks. In that time, I talked to him for hours a day. It was extremely hard to talk to him because I felt disgusted and I felt angry and I felt like I should be free of this. And a couple of times I did lose it on him. And when I did lose it on him, at the end, you know, I would end up having to apologize to him and that was worse. So, you know, the other thing is, as someone who grew up in a family where there was alcohol abuse, I also knew how to stuff my own feelings down and dance with that monster until we could get to a place where it was like, handled and contained and everyone was safe. What was that last phone call like with him where he finally turned himself in? And did you know that that's what he was going to do? It was, I mean, it was, it was infuriating because it was like every fucking day for a week. It was like, well, babe, I'm going to turn myself in today. You know, it's going to be today. I'm at the jail, babe, and I'm, I'm, I'm praying, you know, I just, I went around the whole jail praying and I just need to know that you're going to be there for me. And I just, I had to deal with this every day and he just didn't do it. And then he'd call me back and be like, oh, I just couldn't do it for this reason. I just couldn't do it for this reason. I just couldn't do it for this reason until finally one day I got a call from a jail, one of those like calls that you hear in the movie that's like you're getting a collect call from and I was like oh shit he actually turned himself in and I was so relieved in that moment but even then he was calling me to coordinate with his mother to figure out how to get him out of jail because she had blocked the number of the jail because they had called him so much when they were trying to get him to turn himself in. And so it was like, I can't believe this shit. Like, I'm still involved even now. So, and and I was so grateful that he had turned himself in and I wanted to feel relieved, but I wasn't because I knew it still wasn't over. It just felt like it was never going to be over. So when he called asking you to help him basically with bail and get his mom involved, did you help him? Yeah, I did. You know, to stay in it for weeks, you can't just hate the person. You have to remember also what you love about the person. Hate only gets you so far before you burn it out. And so I, you know, I I did feel for him and I did feel for his mother. You know, she was like, this is my only child. And so, yeah, I did help them as much as I could. What happened once he was let out? 
When he was let out, he convinced a judge that they should let him travel back to Maryland so that he could pack up the house where he lived. And that is when the height of the stalking started for me. So he had two dogs that he left when he went on the run. His roommates were watching them, but they were both moving out of the house at that time. And so he asked me to just watch the dogs for a couple of days at the house, just go feed them and walk them. And I said, sure. So I got to his house and one day it was fine. The next day I get there and all of a sudden I hear this song and I knew the song because it was one that I had sent him when he was on the run to try to like calm him down and let him know that like I would be there. Can't listen to that song anymore, but he was, I heard this song playing and then I heard these footsteps on the stairs and I was like, oh shit, there's someone in the house and I hid and all of a sudden like, He comes downstairs and he's like, surprise, honey, it's me acting like I should be like excited to see him. And I was like, what are you doing here? I didn't know that he could come back to Maryland at the time. And yeah, he was trying to love bomb me. He gave me a bunch of gifts and I was really upset. I said, thank you. But I was like really terrified and I was angry and You know, I see this man who's put me through all this shit in front of me in person for the first time without any warning. And it was just like all of these emotions just charging at me at once. Um, And I had no idea he was going to be in town. And so after that, it was like it started this cycle of him going out of town, coming back in town, popping up, him saying he was leaving, but he wasn't leaving. And so he started kind of stalking me like crazy. So he would ask me to come to his house and help him with something. And then he would find a reason to trap me there. And it would like one day I was leaving for a haircut. And so again, he blocked me into his room and wouldn't let me leave. And finally, when I did get to my car to drive away, he drops his, remember he has a burner phone now because he's been on the run. So he drops his burner phone into my car. I drive away. I get a phone call. That's like, Hey, Hey, my phone's in your car. It's like, oh, oh, what? So I turn around, bring the phone back. He again blocks me in, talks to me for a while. And by talks to me, I mean like, we can work this out. We're going to make it. We can make it. You have to forgive me. The community is behind us. God is with us. And me being like, I just want to go. I just want to go. Please let me go. Please just let me go. I just want to go. Just let me go. And so again, I left Again, the phone rings. He has dropped the phone in my car again, same day. And it was like, you got to be kidding me. And he and he's saying like, oh, it was my shorts. Like the, the pocket just is faulty and the phone fell out again. So he would do things like that all the time or like, I need a ride to the airport. I'm going back. Well, I'm not available to give you a ride to the airport. I have something else to do. Well, I'll change my flight so that you can give me a ride to the airport. Well, I... I no, that's ridiculous. I'll get you an Uber. I will literally pay for an Uber for you. No, it has to be you taking me to the airport. Well, my my father will take you to the airport. No, you have to take me to the airport. And so it was just like this ongoing thing where he needed to see me constantly. And he, I mean, he literally would move flights so that I would never know when he was in town or when he wasn't in town. And then my cousin had graduated from high school and... She was 18. She wanted to come see me for her graduation present. And so I took her to downtown Annapolis and we were just going to spend the day and buy her a gift. And I had specifically told him in no uncertain terms, my cousin is in town. You stay the fuck away from me because you will not be anywhere near my teenage niece. Like, I'm not having it or my cousin. And so we went downtown, hadn't told him where we were. We had had a great day and we get back to my car and there's a note tucked into the wiper and I opened it and it said like, you look beautiful today, honey. And I was like, oh shit. But I didn't want my cousin to see that I was scared. So I was like, oh, like someone left a random note on the car and we get in the car and my phone rings. Again, I didn't know he was in town at this point, and he was behind me in the in the car behind me, and he was like, "Hey, don't tell her. Like, I'm I'm right behind you. Surprise!" 
And he followed us until we got on the highway to get out of town. And then, like, one time I went to get a haircut and he said he wanted to come with me. And I was like, no. And he stopped me from going until my haircut was over. Physically stopped me from going until my haircut was over. Then he had me call and reschedule so that he would know when I was going to be there. And then he still asked to come with me. I said, no, I go to my appointment. And when I get out, he calls me and is like, you look really nice. I like the, the job that they did. And he had borrowed a car from his neighbor. So I wouldn't even know what the car looked like and came and waited for me until I was done. Strictly Stalking is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, guys, we know you listen to all types of podcasts, whether it's true crime, comedy, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers. The cool thing is that you get to call the shots on what you listen to, and there's something for everyone. And guess what? You can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. All you have to do is enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. That's right. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance, and it works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, so they give you options. So just like the podcast you listen to, there's something for everyone. It's really easy to start a quote, and then just choose the best option for you. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Go get that quote at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 27 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Ah, Halloween. The best time of the year is approaching. It brings about all kinds of treats like demons trying to steal your soul, haunted dolls acting up, shadow figures standing at the edge of your bed at 3 a.m. Um, correction, Sabrina. We have proof that hauntings happen all year round, not just on Halloween. We are Corinne and Sabrina, the hosts of Two Girls, One Ghost podcast, a.k.a. the most haunted podcast in America. We cover all types of haunted places, including those most personal to you, your homes, because our listeners are haunted AF. Yeah, remember that story of the little kid who got possessed and then crawled backwards up the wall? Or when that guy was in a trance and had sex with a fae during a solar eclipse? Or when a creature chased a car going 60 miles per hour? Or how about the hundreds of times people have experienced paranormal activity while listening to our podcast? So maybe... We are the reason our listeners are haunted. Don't believe us? You have seven days to tune in and find out for yourself. And if you don't, we'll haunt you when we're on the other side. So at this point, while he's stalking you, he's out on bail, you're obviously not in this relationship with him anymore or trying not to be. Why are you still talking to him? Why are you still answering the phone? I'm still answering the phone because at this point, I'm still in my hometown around my family and my friends. And I felt like I needed to manage the situation. And I could do that by still talking to him. As long as I was talking to him, he was getting enough of what he wanted that... I knew he wasn't going to strike out and do something crazy. In my brain, I was really nervous that he might strike out against my parents and that he might escalate in some way. And I didn't tell anyone that. And I was ashamed. I didn't I didn't tell anyone what he was doing. I was super ashamed. I was you feel helpless and I at the time it was just like, if I keep talking to him, then maybe he'll just keep doing these things to me. And and that's okay, because I've been able to get out every time, and it, and it hasn't affected anyone else. And if I just keep talking to him long enough, he's on bail. He's going to have to go to jail at some point. Like, at some point, this is going to stop. And so if I can just last a little bit longer... It'll all go away without the, like, ugly confrontation and potential fallout from that confrontation. How did you discover that he was basically stockpiling guns and ammo? I knew that he had 
at least one gun in the house because it was something that I didn't like. It was something I didn't feel comfortable with. And so the day after he went on the run, I actually flew his mom into town because I wanted her to be here if he was brought in. And so we went to his house and I wanted to see if he had been there and if so, what he had taken. And I knew where one gun was and I knew he had just gotten another one. He, Someone had just sold him one. And so we got into the house and I found that both guns were missing. I found one empty case and I found that both guns were missing. So I knew that he was armed at the time. And it was concerning, especially when I was stuck in that house with him and I couldn't open the front door and I knew that like he definitely could be armed. This one time we were in a parking lot and it was early on and he called me over. It was nighttime. His truck was parked. He called me over because he was like, oh my gosh, look, the car next to me, someone shattered the windshield. And normally I would just be like, oh shit, and go over and look. And I didn't because I was like, that's crazy. And I actually stepped backwards because my fear was that he was just luring me in so that he could kill us both because he had lost everything now, right? He's no longer going to be able to work in a church. Everyone knows that he has allegedly sexually assaulted a child, which I believe, but he knows he's going to lose me. And I was very afraid that because he was fixating on me, the end game of this was going to be that he took us both out. Was this the point that you realized that you needed to leave town? Yeah. So I think at this point, I really, it's funny that I say that and then I still, I'm going to tell you, I still didn't see that I was being stalked. I didn't. I still was like, not ready to label it that way. And so I had already set up this acting class and I was like, okay, well, everyone knew I was going to be leaving now. So I'm going to be leaving now. I'm heading to LA. And I was like, this is going to be great because we didn't have this showdown. I'll get to L.A. I can tell him we're breaking up and he can't come to L.A. The night before I left, I was getting ready to go to bed and he tried to FaceTime me. And I was like, not answering. Finally, I texted him and said, you know, I need to go to sleep. Finally, I answered the phone. I was like, stop calling. I need to go to sleep. And he was like, why aren't you picking up FaceTime? You always pick up FaceTime. Who's there, Lindsay? Who's there? I'm like, what do you mean who's there? I'm in my childhood bedroom next to my parents' house. You think I'm having some illicit affair? Justin Timberlake is here and we're having a great time. What do you mean? Like, I'm going to bed. I'm going to bed. And I got upset and I was like, I I have a flight tomorrow morning. And this was like two in the morning. And so I was like, I have a flight in three hours in D.C. I'm already not going to get any sleep. Please leave me alone. And I messed up there because the next day I got to the airport. I'm checking in and I hear this strumming on a guitar. And he's, remember, like the music leader at the church. He's a musician. And from the first chord, I knew who it was. And I was like, stop, just, just stop. And actually, when I did, the gate attendant came over to me and was like, ma'am, please let him play. It's so romantic. We've had such a hard morning already. And this will really calm down the other passengers. And so I felt like I had made a scene and I felt bad. And so he came over. He at that point was like, I'm not interested in playing. So we went and sat down at like Chick-fil-A and just talked for a minute. And um, I was like, okay, well, I need to go. And I recognized he was wearing a backpack. And I asked, why are you wearing a backpack? And he was like, because I'm going with you. And I was like, you're absolutely not. You're not coming with me. I'm going to take an acting class. You know that. You need to leave me alone. And so he ended up, I said, I have to go. The security line was really long that day. I stood in line and I was probably in line for at least 40 minutes. And he would, he stood outside the line and would call out to me, babe, babe, and then blow me a kiss. Babe, babe, I love you. Every three minutes, if I was not looking at him, 
And then if I was behind, like, one of the kiosks where the TSA agents sit and he couldn't see me, he would call me on my phone. I mean, it was so weird that people were, like, looking at him, looking at me. I'm, it was it was crazy. And then I got through security. I got on the plane. I called my best friend. And I was like, if, if something happens, it's him. If I go missing, it's him. And I listened to enough true crime podcasts to know, like, oh, shit, you in danger, girl. Like, that's... That that's the point where every person stops a true crime podcast and is like, oh, why didn't she do something at this point? So yeah, I went to LA. I went to my sister's house in LA. I was supposed to be there for a few months. I told him that their relationship was over when I got there. And he continued to call me absolutely constantly, beg and plead for it not to be over, tell me that we were meant to be together. He would call me, especially when he knew I was going to be in acting class, just on repeat, and then be like, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to kill myself, and you're not answering your phone. And I grew up in a town that they called my high school, they literally called my high school suicide high because so many kids killed themselves. It was just a, an endemic thing here, and um, he knew that that was a huge trigger for me. So I'd get out of class and be like, oh my God, and, and call because I've been taught, like, take it seriously when people say they're going to kill themselves. And so I would call back, and at that point, he would have me, and, you know, I would talk to him and be like, this isn't okay, I'm going to go, and he'd call back. So then a week after I got to L.A., I'm walking down the street, and this car zooms in front of me, almost hits me, and I was like, hey, like, what are you doing? I'm walking here. And it was a convertible, and the ro- he rolls down the window and is like, hey, babe, it's me. And I started screaming. And I was like, what are you doing? How the fuck did you find me? And I'm just screaming. And he, with so much authority, just went, stop. You're making a scene and you're acting crazy. And as a woman, I'm terrified of hearing you're acting crazy. And so I stopped. And I was like, how did you find me? And he he said, I know your patterns. I know how much you love coffee. I know that this time every day you're going to be looking for coffee. So I looked for a mile around your sister's house. I knew you'd walk. I'd just been going to all the coffee shops. And that's how he found me. And so he asked me to get lunch with him. And I didn't want to get in the car. So I pointed at a place that I could see. And was like, okay, I'll meet you there. I'm walking. And we got to the place and we sat down and the whole time we were there, I'm crying because I was so scared and he was like, pull it together. The waiters are looking and I went to the bathroom and on my way out, I thought, what if I, what if I go to the bartender and I have them call the police? What if I do that? And then I thought, everyone's just going to think you're overreacting. What if you're just overreacting? He wanted me to go away with him uh, for the weekend and was like, this is going to be so romantic. I don't know when I'm going to see you again. Don't you want to do this? I'll never bother you again. And I was like, no, bro, I'm not going anywhere with you. So we get to the end of the meal and he said, I'll take you back to your sister's house. And I was like, no, I'll walk back to my sister's house. And he just goes, Lindsay. And looks at me and gives me this look that let me know, like, it doesn't matter if I walk or not. He knows where my sister's house is. And so, yeah, he he drove me back. He knew exactly where the house was. It was not an easy place to find. And he stopped exactly where he should have. Dropped me off. I went inside. And at that point, I knew I had a matter of minutes before he would be back. So I waited until he drove away. I watched him drive away. I ran inside. I threw, I'd taken two suitcases to LA. I was supposed to be there for a couple months. I threw as much as I could of just necessities into one suitcase. I was on the phone with my best friend the whole time. Um, And actually, when he first encountered me, the first thing I did was text a couple of my best friends. And they had set up a hotel for me while I was still with him. And that was part of, you know, the motivation for acquiescing to his request and going to lunch with him is I had people in my life setting things up behind the scenes so that the second I got away from him, I could get out of my sister's house. 
there's a second set of steps in the back of the property. So got my suitcase together. I was on the phone with my friend the whole time, left the property, got into uh, Uber and left. And I, I actually never went back. And I went into hiding at that point for the next few months. I stayed the next couple of days in LA. I tried to make a police report. The police told me, oh, it sounds like the guy just didn't get that you really want to break up with him. By talking to him, you were probably just leading him on. Just tell him that you mean it this time. They wouldn't actually take a report. And they told me for stalking, it needed to all take place in one state. And because at this point he had stalked me in Maryland, D.C. and L.A., I could not get a restraining order. So I talked to, I called uh, the domestic abuse and stalking hotline. Um, I talked to a person there. At the time, I was still being kind of like, okay, like, this was weird, but this isn't serious. And I talked to this woman and she said, I do this for a living every day. And I volunteer for this hotline. And you're in serious danger. You have to assume this person does have access to firearms. He has nothing left to live for. Don't wait in LA until he sees you again and you can make a report. You need to you need to get out of LA. And she suggested I go into one of their shelters. I wasn't prepared to do that. And so I left LA and stayed with family for the next few months in different states in hiding. So once you left and essentially went into hiding, did he have access to you at all? Yeah, he continued to text and call me a lot. And, you know, you get so paranoid. I had to check and make sure that he wasn't using my phone location. And he had, like, given me this necklace and I got rid of it because I was afraid that, like, maybe he put a tracker in it because it was like, how does he know where I am all the time? And I was afraid that if I didn't let him keep calling me and keep texting me, then if I ever did have the opportunity to get a restraining order, if I blocked him, I wouldn't have the evidence that he continued to text and call me. And so it was like, what do I do here? And so, yeah, I, I allowed it to go on for for a while. And it was just pretty unbearable and pretty disruptive. At what point... Did things change while you were in hiding? Things changed because I knew an attorney who was able to find his parole officer. And I reached out to his parole officer and explained that I was being stalked and explained that he had stalked me to L.A. Um, and it turns out that he had never asked for permission to leave to go to L.A. And so his parole officer told him basically he needed to stop or he would talk to the judge about getting his parole revoked. So he it wasn't enough to get it revoked already, but they threatened if he did anything else that they would uh, move to get the, the bail revoked. And so I heard from him a couple of times after that, but things slowly kind of trailed off after after that. And do you know where your stalker is now? I don't. I assume that he is still in Texas awaiting trial, but I have no idea. When was the last time you heard from your stalker? I have not heard from him in over a year. I can't really remember the the exact last time I heard from him. Do you think about Googling him or searching for him just to find out where he's at? I do. And I, I do Google him every once in a while. Every few months, I'll let myself Google him um, and nothing has come up thus far. Why did you decide to come forward and speak with us today? I needed to admit to myself what happened. I just wanted to brush past it and get through it as fast as I could and get back to my life. And this huge fundamental shift in who I was and how I thought of myself had happened. And I needed to do this to confront it to myself. But I also wanted to do it because I think that there are a lot of women out there who may be going through stalking and domestic abuse and who consider themselves people of faith and, and who feel 
conflicted by that. They don't want to come forward because they don't want the person that they're in relationship with to reflect badly on their church. Or there's the idea of, you know, being subservient to someone and you think like, oh, well, I'm supposed to be subservient to them. And so like by coming forward, I'm just not being subservient. Like I wanted women of faith to know that it is so important for you to listen to those signals in your body that say this isn't right for you. This isn't safe for you. And I mean, my personal belief that I'd like to share with you is that if you're a person who believes in a higher power, your higher power would never put you in a situation where you are unsafe like this and you can get help and your life can be better and it will be better and you are not like righteously suffering. Get the help that you need. What have you learned from this experience that you want to share with our listeners? I would say really listen to those inner voices that say like, stop, this doesn't feel right. This person doesn't feel safe. Even if everyone around you is telling you how great the person is and how much they love the person. And I would also say tell people what's going on so that they can support you through it so that as things escalate, you're not alone. What's life like for you now? Life is so good. I, I'm really, really happy. Um, I just got a new job that I'm so excited about. I just started doing stand-up and it's going great and I'm loving it. I was just the lead in a play and I I have another play coming up that I'm leading in. I'm so excited. And, you know, I, I found a partner who's so, oh my God, so amazing, so kind, so just supportive and sweet and loving and not controlling. And yeah, life is just so completely opposite of what it was just a year ago. It's It's insane, actually. We're so glad to hear that. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys so much for letting me tell my story. I appreciate it. Thank you, Lindsay. If anyone out there is in need of help or is a victim of stalking, please reach out. You can find a list of resources on our Instagram at Strictly Stalking Pod. If you'd like to share your story with us on Strictly Stalking, you can reach us at strictlystalkingpod at gmail.com. That's strictlystalkingpod at gmail.com. As a listener of Strictly Stalking, please leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, or wherever you listen. I'm Jake Deptula. And I'm Jamie Beebe. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Strictly Stalking. I'm Lola Blanc. And I'm Megan Elizabeth. And we're the hosts of Trust Me, the podcast about cults, extreme belief, and the abuse of power. Now on Podcast One. We're real-life cult survivors. And we're here to tell you anyone can join a cult. If you've ever dived headfirst into a new self-help program, or believed wholeheartedly in a spiritual practice, or even just trusted someone with your life, guess what? You're just as susceptible as everyone else. No one is safe, especially not Megan. I'm the most susceptible. We want to debunk the myth that people who join cults are uneducated or naive or broken, because anyone can be manipulated by a narcissist or feel good in a new group they've joined. And we should know we both have been. Join us every week as we explore the the world of extreme belief, talk to survivors and experts, and share our own experiences with cults and the abuse of power. Don't be fooled. You might be next. Get new episodes of Trust Me every Wednesday on Podcast One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Podcast One.